Welcome back to Couch Conversations with myself, Rani. I am very excited to have Rahil Patel on this next episode. Rahil is a former high-level Hindu monk who came to faith in Christianity after an encounter with Jesus. I hope you learned just as much as I did after hearing his story. Hi, Rahil. Welcome. Nice to have you. Thank you so much, Rani. It's nice to be here with you. Oh, it's an honour to have you on Couch Conversations. Um, it's been a very long time since I've interviewed somebody, yes. so it's nice to it's nice to have somebody from a from a Hindu originally from a Hindu background who's come to faith as well. Um, Rahil, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from, and yeah, what you're doing currently in life. Where are you? So I live in Oxford with my wonderful wife Sabina and beautiful daughter Anushka, who's um, now turned 15 months. So she's a delight. I work here in Oxford um, part-time at the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. I help oversee the Eastern religions and in particular Hinduism and how to have just healthy, wonderful conversations with people from these backgrounds. So I train and equip and create content, online content uh, for that whole world uh, with the help of others from different parts of the world to that. I also am a leadership coach. So I have a few clients um, my coach as well. So I keep myself busy. <laughs> yeah. Busy Amazing. enough. <laughs> what, what kind of leadership do you do? What kind of leadership coaching? Is it business? Is it? It can be any field. It's basically I'm an ICF uh, accredited coach. So I get people from different backgrounds. Strangely, the clients that come to me are not, they're not all Christian, but they come for how to sort of embed spirituality in their career progress, wow. um, their lives as a whole. Wow. So that's just been spectacular to to be a part of and you know they come to me through my website email me they know about my story my background and they kind of want sort of spiritual advice and so we do that through conversations but the idea of ICF training is that you don't always advise you ask questions to help the person find the wisdom that's already within them wow so I, I love that because I see the fruit of that. I see how people change and how they start catching a certain unhealthy habitual thinking patterns. Yeah. And, and it's just nice to be a part of that. So I do that as well. That's amazing. I'm not actually most of the coach because I'm, I'm a coach, but most of the people that we meet are just very like business, you know, and how do we get from A to B? But to hear that integration of spirituality and, you know, business is is amazing um it's so such on... a thing sorry, sorry. carry no no go on, right, it's, go on. A, it, it's such a it's such a thing now in the west you mm. know uh, sort of meditation or some spiritual practice or something more that whole notion of there's got to be something more yeah. you know people are aware of mental health they're aware of anxiety levels now more and i guess when you have a, a sort of civilization that has everything in terms of modernity and availability and then you kind of think okay now 
there still seems to be something missing so yeah absolutely and that and that really slots really nicely into your testimony because I've read your book found by love that's correct right thank you yes it is it an is amazing great. amazing book um I was really moved by it. I read it quite a few years ago I don't have a copy of it because I gave it away to my cousin <laughs> but I was so moved by it, I wanted him to read it um so I just would really love for you know our listeners um to get a get an idea of your testimony because you were a Hindu priest for 20 years yes predominantly from a swaminara yeah the correct term would be a Hindu monk Hindu monk okay because only because you can be a Brahmin and a civilian and still be a priest yeah yeah absolutely and I I came from a Brahmin background but I was yes. never I don't ever live never believed in any of the caste system stuff because yeah. I just I saw it as an oppressive system personally and I think yes. many people would agree with that okay so anyway so your your testimony please tell us about your testimony because it is wonderful so you're right I, I was a Hindu monk for 20 years with uh, the organization that you just um, mentioned I was well my family are from East Africa like most Indians in the UK are you know yeah. Um, Gujarati background, um, but my great granddad had left India in the late 1800s, so we're from Kenya. But during the troubles of East Africa in the 60s and 70s, my family decided to move to the UK because they had British overseas passports, like many, many Kenyans did. Yeah. So my birth was in Kenya, but a few months later, we had finally settled in London. So parents in that generation naturally wanted to move into an area where there are good schools so we were in northwest london and in that era of the 70s parents wanted to hold on to culture traditions language cuisine and so every weekend they would congregate and the best way to do that was to either go to a temple a hindu mandir or you know be a part of a sort of society or a group so in my case my family were involved in um the as you said the Swaminarayan uh, tradition yeah. and the Swaminarayan tradition even for followers who are not monks is, is quite a strict uh tradition um they have a lot of uh, rules and regulations so in our home you know the first thing you do when you wake up is you have a bath and you do your own puja, which is your own prayers. You have your own kit for you know 20, 25 minutes. Then you're allowed to drink water. But after you finish your breakfast, you go into the house shrine as well and you pray, worship there for about you know five, 10 minutes as well. And then you go to school and then you come back, you do your homework. Again, six o'clock, everyone in the family gets together around the house shrine, they worship, pray, they offer food to the images um, then you sit down to eat then might be a bit of tv but then again at nine o'clock you gather together again in prayer um, and you go to bed so that was life growing up you know and uh, so unknowingly my brother and I and a cousin were the only um, non-white people in this whole school so unknowingly I was sort of shifting from two cultures constantly um, throughout the day, then in the evening and the weekends. So, so the weekends were heavily, um, you know, involved in the temple, in the local mandir. 
I didn't like it initially because it was a lot of sitting down cross-legged in the temple, um, long, long uh, talks, uh, lots of different devotions and rituals. It, it was just the time. It was just sort of a lot of time and you don't understand what's going on, and but you have to sit. But that kind of changed later on in life. You know, by the time I was 16, I was given the responsibility to look after the youth. And um, in this tradition, the guru is like the vessel of God on earth. You know, um, when he speaks, God is actually speaking to you. So the guru-disciple tradition is actually a key concept across many Hindu traditions. You know, you see that in the Hare Rama, Hare Krishna as well. But in this particular tradition, that was that, that's the doctrine that he is the vessel of God on earth. And so... In 1988, um, when I was 16, which gives away how old I am, I gave a talk. I was four, Rafael, at that time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So, yeah, he came to London and I was asked to speak in the congregation and I spoke from uh, scripture. Um, he really loved the talk that I gave, the audience really loved it. And traditionally, once you finish a talk in the presence of your guru, you go to the guru and you bow, you receive a blessing. And he said to me then, you, you, you spoke really well. You have a very good gift. You should be a monk, a priest. And so I thought, wow, you know, this is, this is my destiny. This is my purpose. This is what I'm meant to do. And several things happened in that moment. You immediately got this recognition from God right you then have a sense of direction and purpose and meaning you know so a, a combinations of think a combination of things happened which i wasn't able to articulate at the time but it, it kind of made sense and you say okay i'm going to go for it you know mm -hmm. and so i finished my a levels went to india to train in the monastery which is in gujarat it's a six-year training um very intense um, because the practices of a monk are intense, you detach from the world in the sense that you can no longer speak to your family or parents, you cannot get married, you can't look at women, you do not get paid, you can't touch money. If you touch money accidentally, you have to wash your hands 25 times. You can only travel in pairs. So you're constantly in check in, in a way. You know, you're constantly in check, you're constantly being monitored. Um, for the sake that you continue in these vows. So, you know, monastic training was hard. You're up at 4.30, 4.45, you have a cold water bath, you sit down in prayers, and at six o'clock, everyone congregates in the temple, which is in the um, sort of center of the campus, and you worship together, and you do some chores, you sweep the grounds, um, then the first lecture starts at quarter to nine. And then from then until late night, it's lessons throughout like different Indian philosophies, but particularly this tradition that I was a part of, the scriptures related to that tradition were studied in depth. You'd have exams, so you've got to revise. And so a lots of academia, mixed in with a lot of service, a lot of fasting, five to six fasts a, uh, a month without food and water. So that's really intense. I remember one day 
in 40 degrees Celsius, I, I, I literally fell to tears because I was so exhausted and so dehydrated. So that was the kind of training. And this is 1991 in November, the most where I feel I would like to highlight. I was upstairs in the in the mandir in the temple. We were prostrating and singing what uh, our Hindu friends called the arti. You know, it's across all traditions. Now I was prostrating, and um, there were 150 of us. You know, just fully engrossed. And then I heard this voice. It wasn't an audible voice, but a sense. I just got two questions asked to me and said, "Have you?" made the right decision. Are you in the right place? And Rani, this really, I still remember that moment vividly to this day, as I'm even sharing it to you, I know where I was standing. And I just stood, it was for a few seconds, I, I didn't I stopped prostrating, I didn't stand. And I, it was like a quick, I thought, oh my God, what have I done? I've left my family, left the world, left my education. But then in that world, you know, there's a belief that Maya, which is which is an evil force, always obstructs your, 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 your destiny. And so I thought, this is just Maya, you know. The problem was that that sense or that voice was so genuine. It was a genuine question. But then after that, you know, I sort of noticed, observed priests who had been priests for 30, 40 years, and yet certain tendencies weren't changing. Externally, there was a lot of these rituals and a lot of fasting, a lot of meditating, a lot of worship, a lot of service, chores. But the issues, as we say as believers of Jesus right now, the issues of the heart, or what Hindus would say, swabhav, vasana, dosh, you know, those tendencies. I didn't see a change in that. And more importantly, I didn't see it in myself. And so I sat with the guru on one occasion and I asked him that I'm, I'm not changing, you know, and he said that it will take time, you know. I said, well, what these priests have been priests for 30, 40 years, I don't see change in them. <laughs> and so he, it was quite cheeky of me to say that, but it was just a genuine question. And, and he said, you think too much, you know, and that was always a problem. Like if there's a genuine question, you're thinking too much or you don't have faith, or you don't have divya bhav, is what Hindus say, divya bhav is, everything is divine, you know. So I had a problem with that, because I found that to be quite manipulative and, and controlling, but I wasn't able to articulate that, but I always found that there was always a way to justify bad behavior or justify flaws and, and failure. So I continued, but then my health took a hit, you know, during the training six years, I got malaria five, six times, got various viruses. I'm so tired by the end of the training, I said to the guru um, at one point, I just want to leave and go home. And he how, was- How old were you at this point, Rahul? When I was thinking about going home, yeah, I was around 25. Wow. So in this period, so- you were very young when you came to when you came alive in you know or came to service in in hinduism you were you were quite young 19 yeah i was 19 yeah so the training took me to the age of 24 25 then i spent two years in mumbai and then 
because I just kept feeling sick, I just got so fed up, you know, of getting sick. Like in Mumbai for two years, I had, gosh, at least 500 different antibiotics in terms of tablets, different ones. This, this one wouldn't work, so that one. And so I just said, look, can I just leave? And it's not working. And he got quite cross. By now, I was ordained in the orange robes. I had a shave, shaved head, you know, and, and, and fully, fully ordained, as they say. The word is diksha, correct word. But he got cross and he said, look, no, I'll send you to London. But as a monk, can you, you know, stay in the London temple and you look after Europe and Russia? So that kind of excited me because I I'd got a project now. I got something to do, got busy. So um, looking after Europe and, and Russia, initially it was with a colleague and then, you know, eventually I took leadership. So that was lots of traveling, you know, 60,000, miles a year, um, meeting different people, building temples, building a congregation, raising funds. Um, and in the process of that, you know, you, you've got to do a lot of PR in the sense of meeting various ambassadors or arranging meetings with the guru and the president of the European Union and the president of Portugal. So all these things were sort of, you know, fancy and 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 really attractive and you know so it kept me going you know meeting different industrialists and but you know as we say in any worldview busyness can kind of suppress your pain up to a certain point and then that question and doubt and that void then starts kicking in again so that happened to me and so I started reading self-help books you know to change my inner world this just I don't know, Ronnie, I just saw so many of my colleagues, right, quietly suffer. Mm. And you'd see outlets of the suffering, like there'd be a lot of fasting, but when it's food, it's like crazy food. You know, it's like too much food. And so I started reading self-help books. I looked, something's got to change. There's got to be some sense of fulfillment in a as we say now, as believers, joy, you know, that sense of deep peace. Um, now you can do meditations, Rani, that can make you look very peaceful on the outside. Right? And I've done that. And I've had followers say to me, because I was at one point, like I had hundreds of people under my jurisdiction. They were obviously loyal and devoted to the guru, but they would come to me for advice. Yeah. They'd say to me, oh, you're so... You look so calm, you're so peaceful. And they didn't know my inner world that I was on I was on antidepressants. They didn't even know that. Wow. And it's such a I gave a talk at a convention in Orlando, national convention. You know, I, I was one of their good speakers. So I was always invited to the States if there's a big convention, you know, there's about four thousand people before I even get onto the podium, you know, that I get a standing ovation. And um I gave a talk and another standing ovation, sat down next to my colleague. You go to the elevator, people want an autograph, photograph, and you go to your room in the hotel and you, you take an antidepressant. And I even remember saying to myself, gosh, just get me out of here. Wow. You know? So it's just such a paradox life in my case. Yeah. You, know, you know what your inner life is saying and other people think, wow, you know, you're just, you're just so great. Especially so as a monk, 
right? Because yeah, yeah. Because you've practiced, you know, holiness. You've practiced servitude. You've practiced worship. Yeah. You yeah. know, and yet to have that inner turmoil—that's a real yeah. contrast. It's a contrast. It's a huge contrast, and you can't say that to anyone. Yeah. You can't even say that to your colleagues, even though you know that they are quietly suffering in a, in another way. Yeah. Right. So that idea of vulnerability or this, there's so much shame and guilt attached to that. I mean, frankly, it didn't even have a concept of shame and guilt in that world, you know, that you're struggling with it. So the busyness had a slump. I still kept falling ill, started reading self-help books. Nothing worked in there. You know, I read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, The 15 Second Principle by Aunt Al Secunda. Who Moved My Cheese, Positive Thinking by Anthony Robbins, and all the jargon that's out there. Nothing changed. Okay, let me go back into various different Hindu doctrines. Read the Mahabharata again, the Ramayana again. You know, I thought, what is that guru practicing? I looked into Sri Sri Ravi Shankar. Wow, that sounds quite interesting. What has he got that I might need? Um, nothing worked, you know, long story short. And so, you know, by this time, I did have a quite a high profile in, in in terms of in in the priesthood you know i still had access to the guru i didn't have to go through all the different layers of um asks before i could get a meeting with him i could travel quite freely wherever i wanted and um it was in this sort of period that i went to rome for the first time only had nine people in the congregation in rome and they took me to the vatican and uh, went through the Vatican, St. Peter's Basilica, then eventually got into the Sistine Chapel. And I sat there, and the Swiss guards gave me a, a really nice place to sit, which was away from the crowds because of our vows. And ironically, under the painting of The Last Judgment by uh, Michelangelo. <laughs> and it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And I still remember looking one side, you have the story of Jesus Christ and the other side, you have John the Baptist's story. And I remember looking at the stories of Jesus and I simply said to myself, this just makes sense. It's so simple, you know? And I don't know why I said that, but I said it to myself, you know, no one else heard, thankfully at the time anyway. Yeah. But after that, you know, I would be on a plane once a week, once every two weeks, maybe. Whenever I'm landing at an airport, my I was always looking out the window and I was always drawn to the cross. You know, I didn't know what it totally meant. We did a bit of, I mean, I went to a Christian primary school, but it wasn't, you don't remember all the stories and stuff. So I found that fascinating. I found the cross very attractive. Um, I started going in churches. No one questioned me why, because I just had an interest. I used to go to museums, you know, I used to love yeah. learning other cultures, other countries, other uh, civilizations as to what they've contributed to the world. And so I just wanted to have a look. And But I just noticed that I really found the ambience in churches soothing. And as a result, this is obviously a very long story you've mentioned, I've got a book. I started noticing, I started noticing that God must be much bigger and far more beautiful than just in a guru or 
in the images in a mandir, right? And so my theology started changing a little. My talks started changing. People found these talks fascinating. Um, and I thought, this is not really doctrinally sound. <laughs> this is something coming from something at somewhere else. And yet I noticed people found them fascinating. They would travel for miles to come. My talks were recorded and sent around the world by followers. And so, you know, that kind of weird season continued, that weird period of, you know, floating different ideas in my own head, you know, that there's something more. It, it can't be just this, you know. Anyway, um, Meta moved forward. I, I still kept falling ill in this period in and out of clinics. And I'm grateful to the organization. I really am. They sent me to the best of best doctors, hands down. I was in Harley Street or Manhattan, or, you know, they spent a lot of money behind my health. And one can't ever deny that, Yes. which I'm grateful. But then it got so bad by 2010, I got admitted to the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, um, which is like the creme de la creme of, healthcare. Um, five doctors, each of them were chairmen of their department. They, they looked at my file sent by my GP who was in Harley Street and said, looked at me, they said, you're, you're 40. What is wrong with you? You've got all these things going on. Wow. Two of them became my friends. One of them is still a very close friend of mine. And I spent 10 months in the clinic, but that was only in the midweek. Weekends, I was still preaching around the US. <laughs> so it was there was no concept of Sabbath or rest or switch off, you know, yeah. in that world. But it was in this period that, you know, you're forced to be still. And so things that are here in your heart, they start to percolate and formulate and create some crystallized idea in your head. Okay, something drastic needs to be done and I didn't know what but fast forward 2011 I came back to England I hadn't met the guru in a long while and so I went to India to see him by this time I had a secret message passed to me that there's a there's a sort of um, there's a plan to kind of downsize you <laughs> and shift you to a small village in India. So a friend of mine told me before I actually went to see the guru. Wow. And he said, just agree, don't argue. So I said, well, I'll figure it out. You know, I'll talk to the guru. And anyway, the long story was that my theology was causing trouble. And so I went into the meeting to see him and all these other senior priests went in with me. It was a 20 minute meeting, mainly about my theology and, and, and you know, my questions, um, my disagreements. And so the guru said, I'm gonna keep you in a village in India. I said, no, for the first time to God, I said, no, I'm not oh. gonna do that. Said, that must have been massive. I didn't know how it came out of my mouth. I just wow. said, no. Cause it's just, you just naturally never say no. <laughs> yeah. And I said, okay, I'll put you in a small town in, America, where you don't have influence. 
I said no again. <laughs> I'm going to go to England. It's where I belong. Wow. And then they carried on debating, and then I just kind of sighed. You know, I remember this. I just sighed. I said, "Look, I just want to go home. Let me go home." And this room just froze and it went silent. And he said, "Yeah, okay, go." You know, and that was a shock. Like after twenty years of full-on service, I mean, Europe was barren. There was nothing in Europe. You had now at least eighteen centers. You had one temple in Portugal. You had a good prospect of one in Paris. You had a temple in Belgium. You know, you had centers in Milan, in Vienna, in Oslo, in in Gothenburg, Sweden. You know, went took the organization to Russia. You know, and I thought, is that it? <laughs> and I said, fine. And he said, fine, go. And he goes well, on two conditions: that you never give a speech again in your life. And I said, fine, because I didn't believe a word I said anyway. Um, I used to tell people, don't record my speeches. Yeah. They thought I was being humble. You know, I said, it's because I didn't believe what I was teaching them to be true, but they were still recorded. And the second thing he said was never to talk to anyone that you know in the organization and we'll make sure no one talks to you. I said, fine. You know, wow. I mean, it was harsh because my, my brother, um, was a monk, you know, and so not talking to him was the hardest part, I'd say. That night I left, they gave me two pairs of trousers and two shirts, wow. which is quite shocking, you know. My parents had moved to the Middle East and I don't know where to stay, so my, a friend of mine said, you know, come and stay in my hotel in, in central London. So I went there. He said, for four weeks, don't, don't do anything. Just go for walks. Be on your own. You've never been on your own. They <laughs> don't think of what to do next. So I went for a walk one day on a Sunday. It was South Kensington. And I was focused. I was looking ahead and suddenly, randomly, my head just turned 90 degrees. And I saw this church um, down this very quiet road. So I thought, okay, let's have a look at it's probably like the one in the Vatican with all these beautiful paintings. And, you know, I, I just love the art in, in um, you know, Catholic churches. So I went there and it was a Sunday around 11.15 and there were people at the door, you know, welcoming you in. I thought, that's strange. I didn't see that in the Vatican, you know. And they had these incredible smiles, you know, as if they had eaten a banana sideways or something. And it, the love was just so creepy because I was just never used to that kind of love. It was just genuine welcome it's so lovely to have you and i like see i just walked past them anyway and as soon as i walked past them put a few steps into the church and then the presence of god just fell on me so beautifully it was like a blanket of peace and that voice came back again it wasn't that audible but it was simply two words your home wow. and i went upstairs and sat in the pew i'd never seen worship on guitars and drums it was a it was a anglican charismatic church um but it all made sense the sermon made sense i left the church didn't tell anyone who i was and went back to my hotel room and i sat on the corner of the bed the manager of the hotel is still a friend of mine he took me to that same room 
Um, he's, he's, a, he's a Muslim, lovely man. And on the bed on that day, I gave my life to, life to Jesus. I said, yes, this is, this is true. Wow. Which was mind-blowing for me because to, I was quite a debater. You know? <laughs> I would challenge um, healthily, not out of anarchy or rebellion. I would just yeah. question a lot. Searching the truth, and, seeking for the truth. Searching the truth, you know, searching yeah. for truth. You know, I want to get to the bottom of this. This doesn't sound right. doesn't feel right. But here, no one gave me some kind of theological argument. It was just so tangible, you know, the, the reality of Christ. And then seven months later, I got baptized. And then now I didn't have a job. I didn't have um, money. I didn't have somewhere to live. So I'm like, okay, this was quite troubling. But, you know, Rani, in that period, it was so weird. Like, here I was traveling on business class, first class. Everywhere you go, there's 40, 50 items of food. You have several luxury cars at your disposal. Um, you have people bowing at your feet. Here I had not, quite the opposite, you know, a period of two or three days where I had no food. And it was in this period that my friend said, you know, look, go to church and there's a worship session. And before the worship session, there's a prayer time and just go there. And I said, OK, look, he said, it'll take your mind off the idea of you not having a job or whatever. I went there and there's five of us standing there. You know, I was quite sad about my prospects, future prospects. Weirdly, I never regretted my decision of leaving, you know, even though the situation was so harsh, just it just never crossed my mind, you know, I shouldn't have left. It just didn't. And everyone was standing still and the lady leading the prayer said, you know, move a bit so the spirit can move. And I kind of intellectually understood that, but I thought that's a bit weird. I'm just going to stand still, you know. I, I, I kind of knew what they were trying to say. And she came and she just put a hand on my shoulder and prayed. And my God, this river of joy just came on me and from within me and I just started having this deep deep satisfying joy now let me be clear I even tried laughter classes when I was a monk in Mumbai well it's outside in laughing you know to try yeah. and keep you in a certain state which is a lot of eastern traditions they try and do a lot of outside in um fake it until you make it kind of thing yeah this was just so fulfilling it was just you know you don't know you're thirsty until you've you don't know good food until you've had really good food you know yeah. it's, a, it's a I don't know if I'm explaining it well but it was so satisfying and then it kind of clicked in my head a few months later well there and then it clicked that Jesus is not an intellectual idea he's real and he's alive no, his tangible presence is is here and so I said okay I'm going to chase this now yeah and um that's what I've been doing and it kind of gave me an understanding of you know different Hindu philosophers who are trying to practice intense meditation like Vivekananda and Aurobindo I read some of their work I kind of understood what the real difference was between karma and grace yeah you know I just stood there. I didn't do any intense meditation or self-striving, you know, ardent discipline to get something. I just stood there and he said, there I am. 
so that's been my journey that is such an incredible I'm just I, I I feel revived again hearing your story once again I mean I read it but to hear it from you personally one honor and a joy just to see that journey you know that that all of us are seeking for something you know yeah and you know people often kind of think it's a bit cringy when we say there's a god-shaped hole in us but yes. when you've for you and for I personally I know that you know having encountered Jesus you know I encountered the Holy Spirit in a church there was nobody in there and to have that encounter to to encounter the presence of God and for for me you know it's slightly different for you but for the darkness to go and to yes. feel real peace yes it's like nothing else I mean I did you know I did shivering nipple jazz I you know I was quite traditional because I my family was moderately you know um liberal I would say but I used to do shivling puja, I used to do um, Ganesh puja. I mean, I did everything, you know, Lakshmi puja, all that kind of stuff in terms of um, the relig religious things that we do to, to try and earn faith yeah. in God. And I just, you know, hearing your story and reminding that God's grace is not based on what we do. It's who he yeah. is. It's who it's he who is. is. Yeah. That is amazing. What a journey. <laughs> journey <laughs> long journey I mean that's the biggest lesson I've learned from Jesus is like there's no striving here you don't have to prove just sit and be and let me love you and that love not only leads you guides you but it starts working deep in your heart where there are issues of rejection abandonment or other heart issues that we all have and it's yeah. an ongoing but beautiful process you know you, you see things changing you see your behavior your attitudes your worldview it gets shaped just by someone loving you and <laughs> not yeah. you know, not by endless study of something or this fasting or something not that christian practices don't have fasting yeah. um but it's not to prove or to justify or to to please no it's it's coming into his presence yeah it's loving him from an overflow of his love to us exactly and that's available every day yeah, day. yeah. he's mercy than you every day exactly it's not a one-off encounter that you had in 2012 no yeah. no absolutely just obviously very briefly what are what are kind of three key um differences that you've found between being a Hindu and and now being a follower of Jesus what are, what are, what were some of the kind of the three key things that you found a big difference in three key things um in in terms of what spirituality well-being or worldview yeah or... in well I guess in terms of culture in terms of spirit spirituality because you've you know you were a, you were a monk you know, you worshipped, you well, served, you, you know, gave your life in service. And yet at the end of it, you were given two pairs of trousers and two shirts. He said, off you go. So the, the world I now inhabit is culturally far, far, far more forgiving. Because forgiveness is so central to Christian doctrine, right? Now, I'm not saying forgiveness is easy, mm -hmm. you know. Um, 
but that's a stark contrast, I'd say. Yeah. Um, because doctrinally, you know, Jesus forgave us, you know, we forgive. Now, it's not that forgiveness isn't there in Hinduism at all, but it's yeah. a very fringe idea, you know. Um, methods for moksha are more central across different Hindu traditions. So I think that's a and, and a, related, sense of, a sense of karma as well. You know what you reap is karma. Yeah. yeah, what kind of karma yeah. you do. Yeah, I find also stark is the whole difference between karma and grace. Here you're loved yeah. as you are. Here work hard, please prove, justify. Yeah. You know, and you're always going to fall at some point. So the guilt comes with that. Shame comes with that. So here is that you're loved as you are, and when you fail, you're still loved. Not that God endorses sin, but in the genuine understanding of that, you do start to change, and your life naturally transforms out of love instead of works, which is just mind-blowingly simple and yet incredibly profound, right? So I would say that... Um, just, I find this world so restful yeah yeah that's amazing you know, I, have, I have a kid it is hectic uh, i have a family but if you lean into god into jesus he can make the whole journey restful yeah it's not full of strife tension stress you know yeah. he guides you to the next step and i've learned often the hard way that if you keep leaning and abiding, he'll guide you in the next thing. He'll just open it to you. It'll be so clear, so easy. In that world, it was all, you've got to do it yourself. You've got to fend for yourself. Yeah. But there's no concept of the fatherhood of God. That's so beautiful. So, you know, that, that's, um, that, and which is why I believe people really are drawn to gurus because inherently they desire and they are designed for a father, a God the Father. And this is why gurus are attractive. They're naturally better than your earthly father, you know. So it's a desire all human beings have. And, and the whole notion, I, I believe mentors are good, coaches are good. I'm a coach, but inherently there's always this design to seek a perfect good father who protects provides and gives identity and these are the three traits of you know of a good father and that's so that's so a huge beautiful that's so that's beautiful a huge, that's a huge difference and that's why you see in that world a lot of orphanhood when you have to prove it's because there's orphaned hearts wow. and not connected. So wow. when you're not connected to a father, you start proving, you start striving, you start working harder, you get karma. That can happen in the Christian context as well if you're, if yeah, you're yeah. not really aligned with the father. So yeah, those are the three, I, I, would, I would say. Wow, that's so beautiful. And I just love that wisdom of just sharing of why we look to people and a lot of it's I think to do with validation we want to be validated that yeah what we're doing is right or how we're living is right you know I think I think in 
inherently people want to be good, but they get lost. Yes. So they want to be good also, but you know why they want to be good, Rani, is because they want to be known. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and even though love encompasses that, there is a genuine desire to be known. Yeah. You want to be known. People want to be seen, which is they why we have seen. social media. People want to yeah. put, 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 put on this perception of, you know, I have this life. Look at my life. Like, it's amazing. Yeah. I really... And, and you said a beautiful word there. You want to be seen. Now, when you go to, into a mandir, you go for darshan. Hmm? Darshan, the Sanskrit word means philosophy. But it means to see. Right? You go to see. But I noticed, think looking back, uh, not then, when people go up into a mandir and they look at a murti for darshan, they say prayers, they observe the murti. But what the heart is really asking is, can you see me? Yeah. Yeah. Can you see me? Right. Now you can cover it with spirituality, say, I'm going to go for darshan. I'm going to pay my respects. I'm going to say a prayer. Yeah. But really the heart cry in every Hindu who does that is, can you see me? Now, if you ask that question, they say, yeah, of course, God knows everything. <laughs> but the heart is really crying out, do you know the intricate me? Yeah. The quirky me, the weird me. You the know, sinful is, me. Yeah, the sinful me. Is all of me loved by you or is it just this part? You know? Yeah. The other day I was um, just really thinking about this, especially obviously over Easter. There is no other God that has died for humanity. There is no one, there's no other God that has come and suffered and died on a cross for our sins. You know, so all of our behavior, no matter how wild it is, no matter how bad it is, is covered by the blood of Jesus, you know. And as we receive the Holy Spirit, we are transformed from the inside out, you know. We yeah. we are naturally transformed from the inside out. That doesn't mean we're perfect, doesn't mean we won't make mistakes, doesn't mean that we won't even get things wrong. But what it allows is for the Holy Spirit to keep transforming our, our, our attitude because, you know, the, the Bible verse which says, um, be renewed by your mind, you know, your mind, yes. you know, and you were talking about habits of so people come to you for coaching because they want to, they're in this habitual cycle and actually they want something different. Yeah. You know, yeah. people want to change people. People know there is something far deeper in us. Um, Rahul, have you got a miracle that Jesus, I mean, apart from the obvious miracle of your whole life, is there a- I've seen in my own life or have I seen anywhere else or- in have your I seen own life, yeah, in your own life. Is there anything personal? Just what is just one personal miracle that has really touched you in your own life that you want to share? Where to start? Where to start? Um, I went to a church in America for some healing. I always had this heaviness on my shoulders, and it was there for years. As if someone's just pressing down on my shoulders. Wow. And um, I came back and that was completely healed. It just went after years. So I've had a lot of instant healing in Christ. A lot, some of it's been after some emotional healing has taken place. Yeah. Um, 
Ah, gosh. There are so many, I know. But so many. Okay, okay, let's do this one. In 2012, I was looking for a place to live, right? And I said to in my prayer, God, I want to be in a place where I can walk to church and take a and 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 walk to work, you know, something I want to be in that. And which was an ironic, crazy thing to ask for because HTB Church is in South Kensington. <laughs> you can't find a place to stay in South Kensington. And it was just a prayer that I had said, and I just forgot about it. And then a friend of mine sent me an email saying that Andrew Lloyd Webber's brother, who's a world-famous cellist, Julian Lloyd Webber, he's got two apartments in South Kensington, and he wants someone to stay in the second one um, for a very cheap rent the only thing is that they might practice in that in the daytime on weekdays but it'll be all yours on the weekends and evenings <laughs> and would you like to meet julian lloyd Webber, this world famous cellist wow. I said, okay i'll go and meet him so my boss from work said just go you know um i went there and he said we'd love to have you in our flat and you know they gave me box tickets to their concerts over the years That's amazing but even my job i would say one more miracle the job i got because i was still looking i was just dropping cvs everywhere really desperate and then i went to church one day and the and the pastor there just called me forward and and said you know in four weeks you're going to get a miracle and i left the church and forgot about his word but I just distributed CVs all over central London, Mayfair and Piccadilly and everywhere. And nothing, nothing. Four weeks to that day of that prophecy, I got a phone call from the owner of an incredibly high-end uh, gentleman's perfumery. And she said, are you Rahel Patel? I said, yeah. She said, are you looking for a job? I said, yeah. Well, if you come tomorrow, I'll interview you myself. Oh. <laughs> I thought, who is this? What is Trumper? What is this brand? And I started Googling, who have I, where did I, because I dropped CVs anywhere. Yeah. Anyway, next day I went to meet her and she didn't even look at my CV or ask any questions. She said, you look like a friendly face. Would you like to work for me? <laughs> oh. that, was it. that was it to the day. And that, that place was a sanctuary for me. Wow. I didn't have to sell. They really looked after me so well so well when i wrote my book i wrote it in my lunch breaks and tea breaks on my iphone 4 because i couldn't wow. afford that and then on my way home but the owner who's a such a wonderful wonderful lady she said we'll sell rahil's book in our two shops in mayfair and piccadilly i mean this is a gentleman's grooming salon and perfumery so you get all the who's who there so you know, 100 books were sold there. You know, the crown prince of Kuwait. They said, who's this? Because it was right next to the PDQ machine. <laughs> and said, I wasn't even there. My boss was a Muslim. He said, you should buy his book. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that. So, so it's a miracle. I mean, how can you? I've mentioned Harry Potter in my book, right? Okay. And I said, as a monk, if there's anyone I'd love to ever meet in my life, it's J.K. Rowling. Mm. That's impossible. 
and I was never a starstruck person. We had, you know, high-profile actors coming in and everything. Never really blew my mind. But one day I went to hail a taxi for our client and had just finished his haircut because we had former prime, you know, prime ministers and those kind of guys. And so I went to hail a taxi and I came back in the shop and staring through the window was J.K. Rowling. Wow. And then she walked off. <laughs> so anyway, I just went up to her and I tapped her on the shoulder and said, are you J.K. Rowling? She said, yeah. And I shared my life story, how I came to Christ. Wow. And I said, your books pushed me to search for love. And I, I grappled with this theme of love because of your books. And she had a tear in her eyes and she said, I'm really honored you told me this story. So I said, would you like a copy of the book? She came in the shop, spoke for 20 minutes and gave her a copy. So that's a miracle, I think. <laughs> I hope so, because, I, you know, there's, you know, in the Christian world, obviously, Harry Potter has a lot of witchcraft and stuff in it. So it's Yes, quite, yes, yes. Yeah. But but the point being is that you've given your testimony to this woman, <laughs> yeah. you know, to to somebody who's, who's wrote, you know, I mean, I've, I've not read any of the books, but just that sense of, um, you know, you were able to share your story with somebody and you don't know at what point it's going to impact them. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I, I can fully appreciate the Christian world in significant part sees those as witchcraft. Yeah. When I read them as a monk, I didn't see that. I just noticed that this guy keeps getting through life because of the decisions he's making. And mm. that decision is always based on love. Yeah. And then I looked into her life and her church upbringing as a Presbyterian. Yeah. And so I saw a lot of Christian themes in her yeah. books. But yeah, so there's a miracle. That's amazing. Rahul Pai, thank you so much for your time. Um, you know, it's your story is powerful. It's incredible. You've, you know, really opened up about that, you know, that, that kind of process. Now, if people want to read your book, Found My Love, where can they find it? Oh, it's on Amazon. You can go on Amazon. Um, it's translated as well if your podcast listeners are in anywhere in sweden poland denmark dutch um and chinese as well <laughs> if your listeners are in china or one <laughs> rather but yeah on, on amazon and um, amazing that's the easiest i guess if you're in the uk okay and what does you know, it, it, a website, is there anywhere they can find you if they wanted to? Oh, yeah. Uh, rahelpatel.org. Okay, brilliant. That's and is there anything you want to leave? If there's one thought you can leave our listeners with, one final thought, what would it be? Jesus will fulfill you so deeply, so profoundly, so uniquely that you will be thankful for all the things that are happening in your life, all the great things. And yet that will also seem dim compared to loving Jesus. And it's a daily thing. It's not a Sunday thing or a monthly thing. So there's more. That's all I'd say. There's more. Keep pursuing for more. Keep pursuing for more. There's more. 
Thank you so much, Rabbi. Thank you. Bless you. And thank you for being on the podcast today. It is it's a real honor and a pleasure. It was great being with you, Rani. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.